I'm Stacey Rushing, the associate pastor of this congregation, and this is my second week joining you because Pastor Eric has been on Sabbath. I know that it's hard for people to believe in the church sometime, but pastors need vacation too. It makes us better people. And I'm grateful that Eric has had this time of renewal, and I look forward to him being with us next week. But for today, we are here, and it is July 4th in our country, and this day has significance. And it's interesting for us this year that it falls on a Sunday because I think it highlights for us as people of faith this interesting space that we occupy between our country and our church. For me, it brings to light this central question of what is the role of a church in the context of a nation. As we all know, in the United States, we pledge allegiance to the flag and we declare that we are one nation under God. And as broadly as we can interpret the phrase under God, historically the roots of Christian denominations are right alongside the forming of this nation. But we also know that our faith teaches us to be citizens of two kingdoms. Maybe you've heard this. We should be citizens of the kingdom of this earth, this nation that we live in, but we should also be citizens of the kingdom of God with our ultimate allegiance to God alone. As Methodists, we have some founding documents that define what we believe about who we are called to be and what we believe about God. You can find them in a book called The Book of Discipline, and they have long names like Articles of Religion and Confession of Faith, but both of them touch on this topic. The article of relig- Articles of Religion say that we are to obey, observe and obey the laws and commands of the governing or supreme authority of the country of which they are citizens or subjects, or in which they reside, and to use all laudable means to encourage and enjoin obedience to the powers that be. Now you'll note that the Methodists are a global church, so it doesn't define what country, it just says the country in which you reside, where you live. And in the Confession of Faith, it says that we believe the civil government derives its powers from the sovereign God, As Christians, we recognize that governments under whose protection we reside and believe such governments should be based on and be responsible for the recognition of human rights under God. We believe war and bloodshed are contrary to the gospel and spirit of Christ. We believe it is the duty of Christian citizens to give moral strength and purpose to their respective governments through sober, righteous, and godly living. So there is, on days like today, a keen awareness that our Christian identity calls us to be in the world but not of the world, as some people have phrased it, and that our national identity calls us to cultivate a sense of pride. And I guess it could be okay for us to live in this weird gray space between two things, but all too often in our life it can feel like our religion and our state rub up against each other. So today I want to invite us to reflect on what it means to be people who practice a contextual faith. That is, people who practice a faith that is based in a space and a location and a time. And the scripture that I think helps us flesh this out comes from the Old Testament. It's a writing from the words of the prophet Isaiah, and you will find it to follow along on the screens behind me. But before we jump into the text, I want to give us some context for this scripture. Jeremiah was a prophet who was called to prophesy to Judah, 
which was the southern kingdom. And he was called to prophesy a little bit before, but a lot during the time of captivity, where God's people were being held and ruled by the Babylonian Empire. Much of his writings in the book of Jeremiah deal with the reality of exile, that many of God's people were living, and the hope that they had that their land would someday become restored. What we hear today comes from a letter that Jeremiah wrote while he was in Jerusalem to leaders of their faith who had been exiled by the Babylonians to their land. These leaders had been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar to live in Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing to them a word of direction and also a word of encouragement. Our reading today is from Jeremiah 29, and we are going to read verses 4 through 7. When I finish reading, I hope you will join me in affirming God's word for us today. I will say this is the word of God for the people of God, and you'll be invited to respond. Thanks be to God. Hear now God's word for us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who, I'm, who I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into your exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In our context today, it can be hard to fully understand how this would have hit those leaders and priests and prophets who are reading a letter from Jeremiah who has the luxury of sitting in Jerusalem while they find themselves in a foreign land captive to the Babylonians. So it might help for us to understand what they had been taught prior to what Jeremiah wrote to them. As a nation, as Israel, they had been told that they should maintain their culture as people, they should protect their identity as the nation of Israel above anything else. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, where there is painstaking detail for how people should interact with one another and their government, how they should do all kinds of business transactions, we hear in the seventh chapter, verses one through four, what God instructs God's people. It says that when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, by this, he means the promised land. So these are rules going into the promised land. And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jezebites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord, your God, gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them, show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. For that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. 
break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. This is a very different read than what we just heard from Jeremiah. And certainly we have to name the difference of context, right? In Deuteronomy, the people are reading words as they prepare themselves to go into this land they have been traveling to for generations. They are about to inherit the promised land, and God wants to make sure that they are protected from any outside influence. And so they are instructed that they should not intermarry. They should not engage the culture of the land they occupied, which was certainly the framework for those who hear this word in exile. Those priests and prophets sitting in Babylon knew the words of Deuteronomy, and when Jeremiah is writing to them, I'm sure all they can call to mind is, God has told us that if we intermarry, if we live in these lands, if we embrace these cultures, we will be destroyed, not slowly, but quickly. And yet Jeremiah, who is the voice of God for these people, is telling them to do the exact opposite of what they've known. Where they have been told not to give their sons and daughters in marriage, they are now being told to give their sons and daughters in marriage. Why in the world would those who were exiles consider marrying their captors? Or maybe even worse, pray for their welfare. I mean, could you imagine that? You've been taken from your home, everything you know. You don't have your religion. You don't have your sacred place. And what you're instructed to do by God is to pray for the welfare of those people, to marry their children. Are you kidding me? But Jeremiah's words, which are from God, instruct God's people to basically do just that. Which leaves us wondering what in the world has changed in the roughly 100 years between when the words would have come from the book of Deuteronomy and when the words come in this letter from Jeremiah. Well, for one, God's people have changed a lot. In Deuteronomy, they are preparing to enter a promised land. They are hopeful They are optimistic, and these laws which are given to them are like guardrails for a fledgling nation. They are meant to protect the people's allegiance to God and hopefully prevent future generations from straying. But by the time we join Jeremiah in Jerusalem, God's people have kind of created a a mess. (laughs) They haven't really held up their end of the bargain, and as a result, they are reaping the consequences of their choices. They are in exile. They are away from their physical and spiritual home. And if we read a few verses ahead, God does not plan to rescue them anytime soon. It says they will remain in exile for 70 more years. So to say settle in and put down roots does two things. One, I can imagine it drives home the reality for them that despite what they may think, this is a long-haul situation. And two, I think it opens up for the people of Israel a different way to understand Israel's role in relationship to the world around them. Israel is no longer a nation in its infancy that doesn't understand its relationship to God. They've received the laws They've established a culture. They're capable of influencing other people for good. 
And I think this is where Jeremiah's words hit home for us today. We, as people of faith, should live fully into our context, understanding that when we take the virtues of our faith and apply them to how we live, we make a difference in our nation. This is why the basic beliefs of our faith permeate this nation. These ideals of becoming our better selves, such as liberty and justice for all. Are we not people who have been liberated from the power of sin and death? Do we not desire this for others? Are we not called to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God, according to the prophet Micah? When we use these virtues of our faith to seek the welfare of the country in which we live and all of its people, we rise together. When we fail to live into these virtues of our faith, we suffer together. I want to turn for a second to take a deeper look into this text by remembering not only what Jeremiah says, but by thinking about what Jeremiah doesn't say. It's interesting that Jeremiah does not say to live in Babylon, take on their religion, worship the gods of Babylon, honor their rulers over all else. And I think we can miss that in this passage because there is a part of what Jeremiah is asking that is that they assimilate. In other words, they become the same as the Babylonians. He's asking if they situate themselves in the midst of the culture. And this is important as we think about ourselves as people of faith in the context of a nation. We walk this fine line be, between being situated within a nation and becoming fully assimilated into a way of being. On the one hand, we submit to the authority of the land because we believe that the power that we see exercised ultimately comes from and is subject to the power of God alone. But we also believe that we're not called to blind and total allegiance, that our place in our lives is reserved for God alone. The only person we give all of our allegiance to is God. So that if the government under which we live moves counter to how we're called to live by faith, we have a responsibility to speak out, to name that injustice, and to work to correct it. And I think that's an important point we need to see in this story. That the people of God are called to live where they are but they're not called to become exactly as everyone else is in that space. They're called to live their life of faith as they have been taught in the place where they find themselves. What's interesting for us today is this means that when we speak out about something that rubs up against our faith that is happening in our country, it doesn't mean that we're betraying our commitment to place. It actually means that we're honoring it because we are living into the welfare of this land. If there are people in this nation who are not able to live life, to experience liberty, and to pursue happiness, then we as Christians in this country are not holding up our end of the bargain. If there are those in this country who are hungry, thirsty, needing clothes, sick, we are not holding up our end of things. There is violence, war, oppression. We are not holding up 
our end of things. So it's not in spite of our lives that we live in our country. And it's not in spite of our love of country that we speak out. It's because we love our country and we love our faith that we are called when we see these places where we know as people of faith we are called to serve that we speak out. As the confession says, we believe it's the duty of Christian citizens to give moral strength and purpose to our respective governments. And finally, it is our job to seek the welfare of where we live, which means we're called to honor the differences between us and the place we live, between us and our neighbors. You have to imagine that the people that Jeremiah was writing to knew very well how different they were from the Babylonians. And yet, what God is calling them to see is that while they don't need to give in to the differences to become exactly like the people around them, they need to honor those differences and where they have differences because it will help them grow. It might help them gain a deeper sense of who they are as God's people. This is a big change from Deuteronomy to Jeremiah, especially because Jeremiah doesn't tell them to demolish all of the religious statues in Babylon. This isn't just because of the position of Israel in this scripture, which is different than it was in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, they are the victors. They are about to go in and take over seven strong nations. And yet in Jeremiah, they are captives. Because we know that God can work with those who are held captive. Please see Moses and the Pharaoh and all that happened in the book of Exodus. Now what's happening here is that there's something intending to the welfare of a context that calls us to respect that which doesn't directly contradict the virtue to which we've been called. We're not called to exact sameness. After all, we know assimilation is not the way of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is vast and diverse. It expands beyond any nation. And it's in its vastness and diversity that we find beauty and strength. Because we recognize that God is bigger than any one person or community or country. The same principle applies to where we live. The diversity of America is not a detractor from our faith, but actually a way in which our faith can be strengthened. So we don't need everyone to fit in a box that we create. We need to open up the box of our faith and begin to see the many places that God is already at work. Again, because we find our welfare bound up in the welfare of others, we find that our expression of faith is amplified in a country that respects the rights of all people to worship as they choose. We find that our faith is not diminished, but amplified. So as Americans and as Christians, we stand today at this weird intersection of church and state a place that so often can feel like no man's land. We worry that we can't fully integrate our identity as citizens of this country with our identity as citizens of God's kingdom. And yet, and yet, we know that when we pledge to the flag and what it stands for and liberty and justice for all, we have no concept of this apart from what God has shown us by our faith. We could never speak of inalienable, right, inalienable rights 
for all people in the Declaration of Independence if we didn't know that the rights secured not by us, excuse me, if we didn't know that our rights are not secured by us, but by our Creator. And even as we know these virtues of faith and country, we must acknowledge and confess that these have not always been attainable to all people. Our country and our churches have been replete with the sin of racism. When we look back on our shared history, we see the deep wounds of chattel slavery undergirding the liberty of some at the expense of others. And so today, even as we celebrate our shared virtues, we also confess and repent because we want to, as the preamble states, form a more perfect union. And you know, I believe on this 4th of July, as naive as it may seem, that we can do this. We can be those people who seek the welfare of a city as difficult as it is, who seek the welfare of a state, of a nation, of a world, where we can, by bringing forward the gifts of our faith, change the spaces in which we live and not be changed by them. I believe that if we live lives that have been given the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if we bring that to the service of this place where we live and make it reflect every good and gracious blessing we've received by faith in God, we will all rise. When we invest in this space. We not only honor all that God has given us by people, as people of faith, but we strengthen this union in which we live. We make better our country and our communities when we realize our place and God's place in it all. So this morning, as we praise God in worship, as we remember the diversity of God and the vastness of God, but also the specific blessings of freedom in this place. I want to ask that God bless all of us in our work for the welfare of this country. That God bless our leaders, both of church and of state. And that God bless this, our home, the country where our heart is. May this be our song and our prayer to God of all the nations. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.